welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or in one of our beloved radio syndicate partners or in the Green Majority podcast. I am David Franklin Irwin Hostetter with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter and Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. And uh, we are about to discuss the ongoing fires in the western United States, a Mexico-U.S. water deal, a stranded oil tanker, Green Party leader Annamy Paul, and the ongoing... Um, land defense uh, in Six Nations Territory in Ontario. And then Stefan is going to interview uh, an author. Yes, uh, an author, uh, Murray Gassoub, who is a PhD candidate at U of T and co-author of The Story of CO2. We talk about the ways in which uh, carbon can be used. It's sort of another deeper dive into carbon capture and storage, sort of breaking off our previous conversation uh, with, with Alex Tavia Soli from Solistra. And it's a, it's a, yeah, book comes out November 6th, The Story of CO2. Check it out. All right. Now, huge fires are still burning in California as 361,000 customers in the northern part of the state, meaning around 1 million people, had, had their power temporarily cut on the 25th and 26th to prevent electrical infrastructure from sparking more blazes in the midst of intense winds. In the southern part of the state on the 26th, around 100,000 people were ordered to evacuate their homes. Over 2 million more acres have already burned this year in California, uh, which nearly doubles the yearly average over the past decade. That's over 2 million more acres, obviously, than the yearly average, which doubles it. The winds are supposed to ease up shortly, but California remains bone dry. The state of Colorado is also still bone dry, with uh, 97% of it in severe to exceptional drought. It is also still on fire, with fires having recently spread so quickly that a fire marshal had to run through the streets of Grand Lake on the 21st, telling people to run. The Denver Post reports that urban sprawl is continuing to stretch out the state's water supplies, while the mean temperature in Colorado is increasing faster than the global average, and this increasing heat from global warming will be drying out the state even more. The Denver Post also says, quote, Eight of Colorado's 20 largest recorded fires hit after 2018, and all 20 occurred in the last two decades and the three largest burned in the last three months. Yeah, and so this continues a trend that fires, if it was not for coronavirus, fires would be the story of 2020. You know, m- more than 5 million acres have burned across California, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington State this year. And 4.1 million of those is in California alone. You know, these have just, this has destroyed over 10,000 homes and in other structures and already killed over 30 people. And, you know, these are just the ones that happened in, in, in Western United States. This ignores, of course, the absolutely devastating fires that killed over a billion people in, in Australia at the beginning of this year and the ones that have ravaged almost everywhere else you you look almost anywhere else where there are normal fires when when there is a bit of a fire season quote unquote the fire season of this year has been devastating globally and the only way to understand this is that it's a part of climate change and you know the one story we're not actually getting to this week 
in part because it's there's just so much news and it's hard to keep up with everything, is that right now, as we speak, when we're recording this on Wednesday, Hurricane Zeta, which if you guys are wondering, is that we've now moved into Greek letters for hurricanes. You go through the entire alphabet and you get into Greek letters for hurricanes. So we're now at Zeta in the Greek alphabet. Is, is making landfall basically on Wednesday as we speak right now. And it has max winds of 110 miles per hour. And it's, it, it, if it makes landfall at its current intensity, it will be the strongest hurricane to make landfall in the continental United States this late in the calendar year since, since the Halloween hurricane of 1899 in South Carolina. And so this is what people mean by the level of intensity of these storms forever increasing, right? We're simultaneously this year experiencing a once, hopefully knock on all of the wood, a life once in a lifetime event of a of a global pandemic that you know as people say human activity will likely increase so we you know may see another one but is still a significant impact and we've not seen one likes of this since probably 1918 but that catastrophe is that threat is multiplied by the fact that we're also seeing one of the worst hurricane seasons of all time and one of the worst fire seasons of all time, both of which would be the story of the year if they were not entirely drowned out by the virus. And this is what makes climate change so dangerous, right? It's the fact that it keeps growing and growing and growing. Uh, but Lauren, do you? Yeah, I mean, just just really quickly, sort of building off of what you were saying, um, just that, yeah, it's been such an intense and, and in some ways really, really humbling week, given the devastating fires, given that Hurricane Zeta has touched down um, in Louisiana, from what I understand. Um, and again, this was recorded around like seven or eight on Wednesday evening, um, Eastern time. So so we, we don't yet know how the hurricane's going to play out. But last I saw, um, New Orleans is kind of in the eye of the storm right now. Uh, so I, I, do, I don't know what that means. I don't know how that's really going to play out. But that remains to be seen. Um, but then sort of add on to that, uh, there was an article from The Guardian that was circulating a lot online um, over the last few days. Uh, containing news that methane deposits in Siberia um, are starting to release from permafrost um, and and we're sort of seeing early signs that that we're triggering that sort of dreaded permafrost feedback loop that climate scientists uh, have been freaked out about and, 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 and have been worrying about for so long and um, the caveat being this is a preliminary finding uh, the team that found this um, found this sort of phenomena, they still have to return to the site where the measurements were taken to confirm their measurements. And then that research will obviously have to go through like a peer review process, but um, it's not looking good right now. And, and although it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to experience a, a sharp increase in warming this year, um, it does mean that we, we have finally maybe triggered that feedback loop that people have been, that people have been worried about for so long. And what that means is that then unfortunately we won't just be having to sequester um, the carbon that, that we have released as humans in the last hundred years, we'll be, we'll be having to sort of get on top of, um, of this methane that's coming out of permafrost. And, and as we know, methane is far, far, far more uh, potent and, um, and intense a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is in the short term. So um, yeah, not, not looking super great this week, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. This is this is the world that we live in. Uh, but Dave, let's carry on. Mexico and the United States have finally reached a deal for Mexico to repay its water debt. 
The countries have been transferring water to one another for over 80 years, but Mexico has fallen behind in the transfers and apparently now owes the U.S. Um, almost half a billion cubic meters of water. Farmers in Chihuahua had recently taken over La Boquilla Dam in protest of the transfer because the diversion of water from the dam in the middle of a drought had rendered them unable to irrigate their crops. The deal will ostensibly reduce pressure on this particular dam by sending water to the U.S. from more varied sources. U.S. government officials had suggested cutting off the Colorado River that enters Mexico from Arizona if a deal was not reached. Yeah, so reading about this case, it's, it's not actually something that I'm all that familiar with. It, it's not a story that I've seen a whole lot of news coverage of, but um, I was immediately sort of um, reminded that this exact case and cases like this um, are were why people were so afraid and so angry about free trade agreements in the late 90s and early 2000s, thinking specifically of um, big protests we saw around uh, NATO summits and, and, and G20 summits and stuff like that, um, maybe a decade, if not two or three ago. Um, and I feel like None of this is really coherent thought at this point, so please nobody get too angry with me, but I feel like I'm sort of realizing that the left has totally forgotten that in the not too recent past, many folks were really staunchly anti-globalization on the left, um, and it was for fear of situations like this, where, where communities are sacrificed because of promises made in these trade agreements, whether that would be the offshoring of jobs or in cases like this, the wanton export of scarce natural resources. Um, and yet in 2020, we find that usually the only people who would profess to be anti-globalization aren't people who are encouraging us to shop local to save on to save on like uh, emissions resulting from shipping, but um, are instead people who are anti-globalization are, are we, we find that it has its roots in a kind of like insidious nationalism, um, thinking here of, of, of Brexit, uh, where, um, yeah, so, so just that sort of the argument against globalization has shifted so dramatically in 20 years from at one point being rooted in the left and rooted in worries about local communities to being kind of more so an issue of the right. And again, probably if, if, you, if you were to speak to folks on the right who are anti-globalist, they would also claim and they would argue that, it, that it's about saving communities, but it, it might have more of a nasty xenophobic slant to it. Um, and, and I don't really have any uh, genius point to make here. Um, I was just sort of, yeah, sitting with the thought. Um, and, and it made me sort of wonder if it's possible in 2020 to be anti-globalization, to be pro-community and pro-local without it eventually leading to nationalism and xenophobia. Um, cause, because you could argue in situations like this that the main culprit um, and the destructive nature of trade globalization is, is really neoliberalism and not the international element of things itself. But um, yeah, I'm sort of unsure of what the whole story is. Yeah. I think it's interesting because what was so effectively, you know, fought back against any attempts to be to push back against some of these things was the fact that the World Trade Organization managed to make most types of more leftist policies illegal. You know, the the green the the Green Energy Act here in Ontario was almost entirely killed by the fact that you weren't allowed to say that the that you had to build some of the stuff in Ontario that was considered anti-trade and that was able to be, you know, totally undone. Yeah. But I, I guess before we move on, 
what it what it comes down to is is at least at least in this situation what you ultimately have at sort of the root of it is a dispute over water and we know that we're going to increasingly see that because like like you talked about in the first in the first story the entire west coast is extremely dry and it's exactly these regions who are um worried and stressed out about uh water loss and about and about the draining of aquifers so um i'm sure this is not going to be the last time we talk about um trade disputes over water allocation on this show or um societally in general all right so a venezuelan oil tanker carrying 1.3 million barrels of oil has for months been seeming like it might be about to unleash the second worst oil spill in history as it started to tilt in Caribbean waters and the vessel started to flood. The ship, called the Nabarima, was abandoned in the water after U.S. sanctions stranded the oil without a buyer. These sanctions have meant that anyone doing business with Venezuela would likely be barred from doing business with the U.S. Officials from Trinidad and Tobago have since said that the tanker has been stabilized and now poses minimal risk of environmental catastrophe. I like how this is the good news story because the sentence minimal risk for environmental catastrophe is, is the, is the best news we have this week. But um, I think there's a couple points here. One is just the, the knockdown effects of, you know, of these sanctions that exist across, across many different people, across many different areas. Like I think people don't really understand the concept that, that a sanction could leave a tanker just completely stranded in the middle of the ocean. Although I will also rem- note, rem- remind everyone that earlier this year, we had a story about how the fact that there were many tankers stranded across, across uh, this world because the price of oil had made, it made it so cheap that they couldn't sell them anywhere and couldn't place them anywhere. And so this is not an issue that is, you know, specific to sanctions. It's, it's a specific, it's an issue specific to having oil sitting around in ships for this long. And, and finally, my, the, the last quick point I have really here is that this is what transport, this is what an oil economy requires. This is what, this is what will happen. It's not just this one tanker that's sitting here as that's threatening the second worst oil spill of history. You know, when we're talking about trans mountain, that the big conversation there is, can you bring in a whole bunch of tankers through a, an environmentally sensitive area uh, increasing those numbers without doing any damage. And the argument is like, oh, this will never happen. And historically speaking, never happen is not the case. It's when it will happen. It's not if it will happen. And so just you cannot see oil tankers as a part of a, any type of future that unless you're willing to accept the fact that they are going to spill. And, and in addition to that, just to, just to tack on one final point, and I know most listeners know this, but we're still not good at cleaning up oil, especially when it spills in water. Um, depending on the type of, of oil it was, I don't, I don't quite know if it was crude or bitumen or sort of like where it falls in terms of density and viscosity, but we're really not good at cleaning oil out of water. <laughs> Seems like we haven't improved much since like the Exxon Valdez, but um, situations like this are still extremely um, environmentally, uh, uh, damaging. Um, so it's, it's kind of disappointing that the story hasn't received more media coverage. Actually, I, I understand why pandemic, uh, all that fun stuff election, but, um, but yeah, uh, this is still a really serious issue and it deserves a lot of attention and, and it deserves a lot of anger. All right. So green party leader, Annamie Paul 
lost her by-election bid in Toronto in a liberal stronghold riding on the 26th. Liberal Marcy Len got 42% of the vote, Paul got 32.7, and Brian Chang of the NDP got 17%. This means that if the NDP had returned the favor the Greens paid them in the election of Jagmeet Singh, it's possible that Paul would have pulled off the upset against the Liberals. Uh, the Greens chose not to run a candidate against, against Singh in a Burnaby by-election in 2019 and requested that the NDP do the same for their new leader in Toronto. Yeah, really quickly here, because I know uh, we're going to have to stop for a break soon. But um, although I don't blame the NDP for running a candidate in this riding, it's a it's a key riding in the national battle for votes. And this norm of not running a candidate candidate in a in a in an opposing party's leadership riding hasn't really been respected in recent history by parties other than the Greens. Ultimately, it is disappointing that this whole situation hasn't done much to aid in relationship building between the Greens and the NDP. Um, it has long been a dream of mine that the Greens would start leaning left and form a coalition with the NDP, and it would be so great. Um, and, and it's something even that Mariam Haddad, who was sort of a socialist candidate for the Green leadership race, had, had tweeted about, that it was something that she would be interested in had she been elected. But, um, but given Annamie's apparent sort of desire to follow really closely in Elizabeth's footsteps and the way in which votes were distributed in this by-election, it's, it's unlikely that these two parties are going to warm to each other anytime soon. And so my eco-socialist utopia remains painfully out of reach. Yeah. I, the one thing I, the only thing I have to say here is, Honestly, huge kudos uh, to, to Anime Paul and the Greens. I did significantly better in this riding than I imagined they would. I sort of thought this would be a liberal wash. And, and the fact that, that they ran so well is, is a, a signal to, their, to the strength. But yeah, I think the other takeaway is please, if we can have any work, people working together, work together, get electoral reform, then you can stop working together. That's fine. Just get us electoral reform so we can actually have some sensible elections in this country. That would be wonderful. And finally, for over 100 days, Haudenosaunee land defenders from Six Nations of the Grand River Territory have been occupying a piece of land near Caledonia, Ontario, to prevent it from being stolen by our genocidal urban sprawl. The relevant Canadian governments and courts have been bent on seeing the land developed into housing by Ballantry and Losani homes, which is why police have fired rubber bullets and used tasers, and why the land defenders have been handed a permanent injunction ordering them to leave. Rubber bullets have even been shot at people occupying an area not covered by the injunction. The land was called Mackenzie Meadows until the land defenders arrived and renamed it 1492 Landback Lane in order to try to start putting an end to the genocidal encroachment on their rightful territory around Grand River that has been going on for the past two centuries. The OPP, that is the Ontario Provincial Police, released a one-minute video on October 25th of two land defenders becoming aggressive. The, cap the caption they attached uh, to the clip celebrates the restraint of the police, but it does not mention that the video was taken directly after police shot rubber bullets and tasered someone. Premier Doug Ford responded to the clip, saying, quote, Don't be attacking our police officers. They're here to help you, to support you, to keep law and order. Just imagine if we didn't have the police. There'd be anarchy. Landback Lane spokesperson Skylar Williams said of the clip, quote, It's despicable that you show this out of context. That was just following rubber bullets being fired at people, a guy getting tasered. These are the tactics that we're used to seeing from not just the OPP, but police in general across the country when it comes to dealing with people of color. 
This is why Black Lives Matter is the way it is. This is why indigenous standoffs are happening across the country. The Six Nations elected council uh, agreed to publicly support the project last year in exchange for 40 acres and several, several hundred thousand dollars, but the land defenders say the elected council only represents a small percentage of Six Nations members who number over 27,000. Makia Williams, daughter of Skylar Williams, wrote in an open letter published by Yellowhead Institute on the 28th, quote, It is heartbreaking and saddening to see politicians cheer when my mom was arrested for attending to her Haudenosaunee responsibilities as a Mohawk woman. Yeah, so very quickly, uh, the, if you want uh, to support um, this sort of you know, work going on in 1492 Landback Lane, uh, there is a legal defense fund that you can find uh, in, and uh, you know, follow their Twitter account. You know, they'll share it with you. And as a other side, which I think just has to be noted here, the sort of the the people around this area are not, you know, are not just in some ways, you know, just bystanders. You know, the mayor of the town actually owns has bought a house that he wants to live in, I believe, or at least owns, owns property in the area that is being contested currently. And so, you know, the idea that they're going to get any sort of fair treatment from the from the from the people around them seems pretty much moot off the bat you know which not only goes to show how you know tone deaf the the comment from ford is you know given the idea of imagine there was no world police and that's basically the rallying cry that uh, from the from the left there has been about defunding the police this entire time and so yes doug we would like to imagine that please let us uh you know we think it would be better We are here with a, with a special interview with Murray Gassoub, a PhD candidate at U of T and co-author of The Story of CO2. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And, and so, you know, listeners to the show may know that we care about CO2 on this show and really think everyone should. Um, but I'm curious, sort of, how, how did you come to write this book? Yeah, it's a fair question. I just want to say that, uh, first of all, I'm speaking today from Tecoronto, so the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and more recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. So I think like many folks of my generation, many millennials, we uh, grew up uh, possibly watching Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, being a little bit terrified, wanting to do something, wanting to get involved. And I studied engineering um, as an undergrad student, and I later decided to pursue a PhD with Professor Jeffrey Ozen, who is a co-author uh, of this book. And I was um, drawn to his research because he was doing this really cool thing, sounded really cool to me at the time, and it still does, um, called carbon dioxide utilization. So the group is doing research into how to transform carbon dioxide into valuable products and to, to provide a means of not only uh, mitigating emissions, but actually producing something of value as well. So I was completely enchanted <laughs> by this idea and ended up doing a, a four-year PhD in chemistry. So my research uh, specifically is um, a little bit more on the material science end of things, 
So I study catalyst materials specifically that can enable the conversion of carbon dioxide to methanol. In my, I think it was towards the end of my first year, Jeff approached me with the idea of writing a book. And I thought he was kind of crazy. But a few years later, and here we are, and it was a very, um, it was a very interesting journey. I learned a tremendous amount, and I should add that we're really uh, coming at a lot of this as, um, as scientists, and uh, especially as chemists. So hopefully we can offer a bit of a unique perspective on carbon-based technologies and on climate mitigation strategies more generally. Amazing. Yeah, and so that is, of course, sort of why uh, we brought you on the show, because we on the show are not scientists and definitely do not have the level of, of sort of understanding of, the, of these technical pieces. And, you know, even from talking previously a couple weeks ago with Alex Tavasoli, we were sort of discussing the difference between pulling carbon out of the air, which, you know, with those giant sort of fans that you often see in, in photos, and... Uh, which, if I understand your writing correctly, is referred to direct air capture, and attach, and then something like attaching something to the end of CO two intensive process, or you know, point of source capture, which I imagine is a little bit more what what would be required for the type of sort of transformations you're talking about. But I think to sort of start the conversation out, it's useful to give a background of what both of these two types, so direct air capture and point of source capture, sort of mean and what they look like. For sure, yeah. It's um, there's a lot of uh, terminology in this world, so it's it's helpful to have a specific idea of what we mean. So when we talk about carbon capture, as you said, it typically takes two forms. So you there there is what we call direct air capture. So that is literally sucking carbon dioxide out of the air, and it's as cool as it sounds. Um, it actually works. There are two companies that um, currently do this. One is actually based here in Canada, carbon engineering. So that's direct air capture. Now, the other option is capture from industrial waste. So I liken that more to filtering carbon dioxide out of a waste stream. So typically when you're doing this, it's called point source capture. You are capturing from higher concentrations, uh, sources of higher concentration CO2. Um, and thermodynamics tells us that it's a lot easier to capture uh, from a high concentration source than from a low concentration source. So it's no surprise that actually worldwide, 90% of the capture infrastructure is from point sources, not from direct air capture. So direct air capture is technologically um, and economically a lot more challenging. But point source capture has its merits too. So currently there are uh, 20 large-scale capture projects worldwide, and most of these are integrated with industrial operations. And I think they capture on the order of 40 million tons of CO2 per year. So this is significant levels of carbon removal. And what this looks like is typically these capture systems are integrated um, with industrial plants. So these can be power plants, but also, you know, steel manufacturing plants. It can be captured from uh, the flue stream of uh, cement production plants. So really, this is a way to help big industry decarbonize. So yeah, that's specifically through um, point um, source capture. Cool. 
And so with those two sort of major sort of differentiations in, in that, in, especially in that when you imagine you know, direct air capture, that's sort of seen as, as what would be the ultimate like more geoengineering type attempts to remove carbon out of the air sort of directly, whereas this is a more, as I mentioned, more of a mitigation sort of tactic. For sure, for sure. And I would add to that, I think that, you know, although point capture is, that's the one that's happening, it's more feasible, it's a great way to, as you said, it's, it's kind of like a mitigation, you, you prevent those emissions from getting into the atmosphere. Um, but I would say that I, I think going forward, um, direct air capture could play a really significant role in addressing legacy emissions. So those emissions that are already in the atmosphere um, and, and that very well may be possible to meet the, the target set out by the IPCC report. Yeah, and we'll get to a little bit more about that a little later on in the interview, I think. But I, I think it's important to note as well that the capture part is, is sort of here. There's, there's, those are the major ways of capturing. You've now captured some carbon. And, and yet there, that's still, you still actually have to keep it somewhere. And there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can keep it places. And some of these are better than others, and, and some of them have different purposes than others. So can you sort of get into the main options available to us to actually store the carbon once it's captured and to ensure it doesn't sort of leak back out, really? For sure. So generally, when we talk about um, carbon storage, we're typically referring to geological storage. So that involves storing carbon dioxide underground. So not all rock can securely store carbon dioxide, um, and storage locations need to be carefully selected by geologists and geological engineers. So basically it involves injecting uh, carbon dioxide into some porous rock that is sealed essentially by a layer of impermeable rock. And the um, imperme impermeable rock essentially acts as a seal to contain the carbon dioxide to prevent it from leaking. And this is, this is, in my view, something that just doesn't get enough attention because worldwide there is tremendous capacity to store carbon dioxide underground. There are ranging estimates as to what exactly the capacity is, and I've seen numbers anywhere from 6,000 gigatons to 25,000 gigatons. But at this point, we're emitting uh, roughly 35 gigatons of CO2 per year. So the worldwide capacity for geological sequestration is plenty to address our emissions challenge. So that's geological sequestration. There are other ways, though, of storing carbon. So one is through biochar. So that's a charcoal-like substance. It actually involves burning biomass. So you essentially burn biomass in the absence of oxygen, and it creates this really stable uh, carbon-rich solid residue. And its carbon-rich composition actually makes it a really effective soil enhancer. And it was previously used, actually, uh, by pre-Columbian people of the Amazon, and they used it for centuries to enrich and make productive what was otherwise very sterile land. So biochar is very stable in the long term, so that's also a very effective, more natural, I guess, form of carbon sequestration. But of course, challenges with, with these forms of storage, with geological storage specifically, is that it's really, you know, and I, I should add too, there's some skepticism, uh, I believe, around geological storage and concern with issues around leakage and such. But if one goes to the scientific literature, study after study um, demonstrate that these projects 
if carefully monitored um, and properly managed, can offer a really safe means of sequestering and storing carbon in the long term. And in some cases, the carbon that's stored can even mineralize. Over time, it will actually chemically interact with the rock and mineralize, so then it's not, no longer in a gas form anyway. The point being, though, these projects don't offer, uh, they're not really seen as, as economically interesting, of course, uh, because you're, you're storing the carbon, you're not creating a product. So in our current economic, in the mainstream view, this is not of value. Arguably, it should be if we're putting carbon away. But so an alternative to storage, and this is really getting to what's the heart of the book, is the idea of converting carbon dioxide into products, specifically into chemicals and minerals. And one major benefit of this is if we can transform carbon dioxide into value-added products, potentially down the road, this could create a market for carbon capture and uh, eventually hope to um, eventually just incentivize carbon capture and storage projects. So our book actually starts off with this concept of a chemical tree. So the idea is that we can think of our manufacturing economy as a tree. Stay with me here <laughs> in this analogy. But the idea is at the roots of this tree, we have our natural resources, our water, our minerals, and fossil fuel is currently a major component of that. And so these are the most basic building blocks available to us. And they can be combined to create a larger set of materials and chemicals. And then from these, we can manufacture an even larger, more complex set, and so on and so forth to eventually form all the sophisticated consumer products that we, that we know. So I'm talking everything from electronics to pharmaceuticals, fertilizer. And if, if we see it as a tree, we, we can see how it's actually quite impressive. You know, as many as 100,000 products actually derive from just a dozen or so basic chemicals. So the idea we have here is, well, can we replace petrochemicals, which are currently at the base of this tree, carbon dioxide, to make those really key basic chemicals. So we're talking methanol, synthesis gas, some polymer, cement, carbon nanotube. And so there's a lot of ongoing scientific research into how we can get these processes to industrial levels, and some of them already are uh, commercialized. But the book touches on a lot of the science and uh, some of the stories around this newish industry of carbon utilization. Cool. And, and so you've 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 sort of touched on this a little bit, and I think it's a question I sort of I, I feel required to ask, especially in a world where, as you sort of hinted at, we're constantly sort of bombarded with the idea that technology is going to save us, you know, that there is going to be, that we don't have to worry even about sort of the, the ecological processes because we're going to innovate our way out of this. And obviously this, this kind of technology would be a part of that innovation that's going to, you know, save us. And so I'm curious, some, as somebody who's like looked into this as significantly as you have, why, what is the best argument as to why this won't happen? So what challenges are still in the way to be solved? And then what's the strongest argument you can make as to why this will, will not save us? Fair question. <laughs> so right off the bat, you know, I'm, we can do these things, not, uh, but, but it's not easy, even technologically, to get it done. It might be feasible, but it's not easy. So one reason 
well, in, in my view, the biggest challenge to making this a reality is the amount of renewable energy that's going to be required to power these processes. So it's one thing like, yeah, it sounds great. We can capture carbon dioxide, we can create all these great products, but all of these processes require energy. And so long as we're still operating in a fossil-based system, we're not really doing ourselves much of a favor. We want to eliminate fossil entirely from the process. So already it's going to be a challenge to expand, to develop and expand our existing grids, but also to, to completely uh, transition from fossil to renewable sources of energy. And it's really going to increase uh, demand for electricity. So then introducing this whole new chemical infrastructure uh, based on based on carbon dioxide conversion that's going to be very energy intensive obviously that's going to be a major challenge of how to integrate that with um, a new renewable energy source so obviously um, that's a, that's a challenge another challenge is that many of these processes specifically the carbon dioxide conversion processes where we're forming a hydrocarbon product so say like a fuel or something Many of them not only require carbon dioxide, but they also require hydrogen. If you're gonna make a hydrocarbon, you need both carbon and hydrogen. So the book um, also touches on this challenge of procuring renewable hydrogen. So it can be obtained, uh, for example, through water electrolysis. But if we're starting to use water to produce hydrogen, you know, you encounter all these challenges in terms of access to clean water. Water access is already a major issue worldwide, and that's only going to worsen as the effects of climate change continue to kick in. So water desalination technologies are likely going to have to be a component of this solution if it's going to be truly sustainable and equitable. So yeah, actually one of the chapters of our book, uh, it's called Power to the CO2, is completely dedicated to talking about these auxiliary processes and technology that are going to be involved to actually um, make carbon utilization happen. And then another reason to be skeptical, of course, we can always come up with reasons to be pessimistic and skeptical, is that you know just actually making the uh, technology commercially available, bringing it to scale, making it standard is going to take a huge amount of policy and uh, policy in favor of carbon capture, storage and utilization can take various forms. Uh, of course, media tends to place uh, a lot of focus on carbon pricing mechanisms and cap and trade, carbon taxes. And these things are important, but they're not, that, that's not the only thing that's required. You know, we're going to need um, a mix of really ambitious policy, uh, but a lot of regulation as well, these are which are going to be needed. So, you know, and also policies just to, to promote, well, not only to promote, but just to initiate the development of uh, companies and of markets for CO2 products. We're going to need tax incentives, mandates, product labeling, possibly government-supported certification and testing. Um, you know, it'd be really cool to go to the store and be able to, to see, oh, is this like, is this truly a carbon neutral product? Was this made from carbon dioxide? Those are all things we can begin to imagine in a future where this industry um, actually exists at scale. 
and you know, policy is also going to have to reflect that an industry like this that is going to require so much infrastructure is going to face longer timelines, right? Uh, these aren't just software startups that can, you know, get a product to market in a few months. So we need policy to reflect the timescale required. Fair. So, yeah. Yeah. Plenty to be <laughs> pessimistic about. Right, yes, and, and, and plenty of time. That's actually a very interesting point in regards to just the fact that these are physical things. There's inherently a timeline on how long it takes to even build the stuff and build the infrastructure required to be able to do the work at all. Given the fact that there are these timelines, given the fact that this is sort of a, a very technological solution to the problem, how do you see this connecting to you know, climate justice? I'm curious to see if you see how you see this technology sort of fitting into or being a part of that movement. That's a really great question. And I think it's a question that we're just not, it's not being talked about uh, generally, maybe because um, the area of capture, storage, and utilization is already fairly new in the mainstream but it's something we're all going to have to reckon with because it can, you know, going down this path, it can look very different depending on who's designing it, who's deploying it, who's in charge. Um, so in terms of climate justice, though, we really can't expect environmentally just outcomes to happen within our existing institutions and structures because they're really relying on market-based solutions. So something like carbon capture, storage, and utilization, it's going to, one way of seeing it is that this is a bit of a paradigm shift where we're, we're moving away from this linear economy that's very much resource to product to market. So we're moving, moving away from this linear sequence to replace it with something that's more circular. So instead, this waste that's typically generated at every step of this linear system, we're going to start seeing that waste as resource, this CO2, and we're going to start using it. So in that sense, you know, perhaps there is um, uh, this CO2 capture, storage, and utilization stuff can actually be envisioned to operate within a circular economy, one that's sustainable, one that's equitable. So perhaps there is a conversation there. I think more importantly, though, um, capturing and specifically storing the carbon dioxide could potentially be a kind of um, restorative um, approach. So currently, you know, one challenge, of course, with climate change is that it doesn't see borders, right? So those responsible for the majority of the pollution are not necessarily um, the ones suffering uh, the outcomes. In fact, it's the most disenfranchised the poorest nations that are really going, that are already um, suffering the worst consequences of increasing levels of carbon dioxide. So in this, from, from this perspective, carbon capture and storage could possibly be seen, like possibly be a strategy for wealthier nations, for the global north to adopt, to essentially address their legacy emissions. So that's where I see the potential for carbon capture and storage um, to play a role within climate justice. But it's, it's understandable, too, that carbon capture utilization and storage, I'll start saying CCUS for short, um, it's understandable that it's 
historically been viewed um, with a lot of skepticism on the left, specifically within the climate justice movement, because, you know, there's this idea, and it's not wrong, that it can uh, prolong the life of the fossil industry, right? Specifically with when we're talking about capture from, say, coal-fired power plants, right? It's a way for these, um, this industry to continue to operate and they can claim that they are cleaning up their mess, but it's not enough. It, we know it's not enough at this point. We have to transition to renewable energy. We have to move away from fossil fuels. So the skepticism is totally understandable. Um, another part of this, which I should mention, is currently um, a lot of the carbon capture facilities, in order to make their processes economically viable, they've actually partnered with oil companies. So they're selling the captured carbon dioxide to oil companies who then use the carbon dioxide for enhanced oil recovery. So that's the practice of injecting carbon dioxide into existing oil reservoirs to essentially pull out as much uh, carb, sorry, as much oil as possible, really uh, milking the oil well um, to its fullest. So there is plenty of reason to be skeptical because currently the industry most involved in carbon capture and utilization is the fossil industry itself. I would like to be an optimist about this though, and you know, we've, in a time of emergency, we, we need to separate the, the technology itself from the way in which it is deployed and managed. So it's, it's not that carbon capture, storage, and utilization is evil. It's that we need to take control of how it's managed. We need it to be, um, we need to decide, okay, well, who is this benefiting really? And um, I think there, there's a really interesting conversation to be had about energy governance, um, about, uh, you know, deployment of these massive scale uh, technologies in general, who's going to be in charge, who's going to be at the decision making table. So either way, you know, folks on the, the radical left are going to have to reckon with things like CCUS because, you know, at the end of the day, some degree of gigaton scale removal is necessary to limit warming. And if we don't reckon with it, someone else will. Right. And so let's let's talk about that because I think there is certainly uh, you know a lot to be said about you know the opportunity as you mentioned for for the richer countries to to use especially I think direct air capture if it was you know commercially viable like right now I, the last I saw it was about two hundred dollars a ton to remove air from the atmosphere which obviously is more money than any price on carbon in the world and so it it's not economically viable as it stands. But, but, you know, as, as technology, you know, normally pulls prices down, you could see it becoming more economically viable. And certainly you could see a world in which this would be one way for countries to aim to more directly deal with their legacy emissions. And so if we can get to these challenges, so let's, let's pretend we have unlimited energy. You know, I, I don't know how we've gotten this unlimited energy. You know, maybe we've, you know, it's through tidal and a bunch of, you know, every different type of renewable energy that we've learned and, you know, are used in right ways. And we've got, so that problem is now solved. What could the impact be? Like, how quickly could we get this up? And how much good could, we, could be done? So there, there is a lot of reason, there are a lot of reasons to be excited. So I think I've 
probably made pretty clear, you know, as to what the impact of geological sequestration could be, um, knowing the worldwide capacity far exceeds our current gigaton scale problem that I, I think it's, you know, it's something we should all be excited for and advocating for. But there are also reasons to be excited about carbon dioxide utilization. So there have been various studies trying to quantify the exact impact of carbon dioxide utilization technologies. And these numbers um, range quite a bit, but conservatively speaking, the idea is that if we, if a significant effort were put towards making chemicals, some portion rather, of chemicals, minerals, polymers, cements, and some fuels from carbon dioxide, um, this could potentially reduce emissions by 13% by 2030. So this is significant, but I'm going to uh, be honest and say, you know, this isn't, this isn't like a crazy big number, right? Um, the biggest savings in, um, in terms of emission mitigation are going to come from moving away from fossil fuel towards renewable energy. That's where our mitigation solution should rest primarily. So although this isn't significant, right, the, it's not that impressive, let's say. However, where we should be optimistic is that carbon utilization really has the potential to address those hard to decarbonize sectors. So we're talking like cement, steel making, these really big industries where we just don't really have a great solution. Uh, we can't just introduce um, infinite electrical power and operate as, you know, as before. These these um, industries often actually use hydrocarbons as a chemical input to the process. So it's not just being used to power the plant or whatever. So that's where we should be excited because carbon dioxide can really provide an alternative for petrochemical uh, resources in chemical manufacturing supply chains. And yeah, I guess the last uh, thing I should mention is, you know, although some folks might be thinking like, okay, that's great, but like, shouldn't the main thing be capture and storage? Let's just get this stuff into the ground. One way um, in which carbon utilization also plays a role is that it can help to create a market for carbon capture and storage, right? So if there's, if there's a financial interest, if there are value-added products to be made, this might incentivize the development of the infrastructure um, to actually uh, capture and store carbon dioxide um, at scale. So yeah, there are a few reasons to be optimistic. <laughs> well, that's that's obviously good news for all of us. So I guess I, I, I have sort of a two-pointed final question. The first is if there was sort of one thing you would want people to understand about this technology, what would that you think people don't understand or often misunderstand? What would it be? And and the second uh, so part, the second part of the question is how can people find this book when they when they want it yeah for sure so if i want to leave people with something i guess it would be you know to avoid binary thinking in that it can it can be really easy to frame this as oh some people want to capture and store the carbon but instead we need to be mitigating you know we need to but it's really not either or it's it's a yes and situation so I really see it as large-scale deployment of carbon dioxide capture, storage, and utilization needs to be thought of as complementary and ultimately integrated with hydrogen production, 
um, the expansion of renewable energy resources, the development of energy storage technologies, water desalination. These all have to work together, you know, if we are to achieve a, a truly sustainable and emissions-free economy. So that's the thought that I would leave people with. And yeah, with regards to the book, so it comes out on November 6th, and I would encourage folks to order it through their local bookstore. And if uh, you're living in the U.S., you can place orders with IndieBound.org or Bookshop.org. And for those living in Canada, um, Don Gorman, um, who's a Victoria-based uh, publisher of Rocky Mountain Books, he actually created a Google map last spring that shows all the independent booksellers operating online and offering delivery or curbside pickup. So I'd really encourage you to uh, check out his resource if you are unfamiliar with your local bookstore. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. We will share the information on our social media channels when it does come out. And the other information you just shared will be shared in our show post, which will be uh, up uh, on the website. And uh, well, thank you so much, Marae Gusso, uh, a PhD candidate from U of T and co-author of the story of CU2. Uh, thank you so much for being here.